Look, our brains are great at lots of things, but remembering passwords is not one of them, especially not secure passwords. Let's free our brains from being password managers and get something way better. 1Password. One 1Password one keeps everything private and in sync across multiple devices. 1Password can't see the passwords or sensitive information you store in 1Password, so they can't use it, share it, or sell it, and neither can anyone else. I've been using 1Password for about 10 years now, and it's made my life so much easier, especially using it with Touch ID and Face ID. It's the first thing I install on any new phone, computer, or tablet I'm using for myself or my family. And all you have to remember is one strong account password that protects everything else your logins, your credit cards, secure notes, or the office Wi-Fi password. And I love that something I use to save me so many hours I can't even count them all is something you can try too. Right now, my listeners get a free two-week trial at onepassword.com slash beyond for your growing business. That's two free weeks at onepassword.com slash beyond. Don't let security slow your business down. Go to onepassword.com slash beyond. and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I am your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to share a conversation I had with Michelle Seeger. She's the author of the new book, The Joy Choice, How to Finally Achieve Lasting Changes in Eating and Exercise. And we've tackled both those topics on this podcast in previous episodes in some form or another. It's been a while, though, so I thought revisiting it would be great, and she had a timely new book coming out. And there's another component that we've tackled recently also that plays directly into eating and exercise, and that's habits. We've talked about habits even as recently as my conversation with Laura Vanderkam from a few weeks ago, where she talks about how a habit can be consistent if you're doing something even just three times a week, and that ultimately... It's up to you to set the consistency that you need to make it happen. Have enough consistency to be consistent, but not so slacking in consistency that there's none there at all. We also talked about habits with James Clear about his book, Atomic Habits, when it first came out. And we also touched on another aspect of habits with Jeffrey and Jamie Downs when we talked about their book, Streaking, the simple practice of conscious, consistent actions that create life-changing results. So after setting all that context, I can say that Michelle Seeger is a PhD and an award-winning lifestyle coach and researcher when it comes to sustainable behavior change. She's a researcher at the University of Michigan, and for three decades, she's been pioneering methods to create sustainable, healthy behavior change, as well as boosting patient health, employee well-being, and membership retention. So in this conversation, we're going to dive deeper into her research, her methodology, and her book, but especially her perspective on habits specifically and why they don't work for some people, or better said, how to get them to work for people that they don't normally work for. What's the secret to that? Well, you're going to have to listen to find out. So I'm going to get out of the way and just say, enjoy this conversation with Michelle Seeger. Well, this week, it's my privilege to welcome to the show, Michelle Seeger. Michelle, welcome to Beyond the To-Do List. 
Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm excited to talk about this topic specifically. Actually, it's multiple topics in a weird way because we're not going to just talk about eating and exercise and health, but we're going to talk about habits as well. You've got a unique perspective on that. You've got a unique background in terms of research and interest into this. I'm curious, as a sustainable behavior change researcher, which that's a mouthful and that's a lot there, at the University of Michigan, what pointed you in this direction of tying habits to health? Wow. Actually, something very specific happened in 1994, which is almost 30 years ago. I was getting my first master's degree in kinesiology, and we were doing a randomized trial with cancer survivors looking to see if exercise could significantly benefit this group compared to a group that didn't exercise. And I have to say, these were not active cancer patients. They were survivors. They were living normal lives about four and a half years after treatment. And we found what we hypothesized, which was that the group that exercised reduced in depression and anxiety compared to the group that didn't exercise. And I was a newbie. I thought that was the end of the story. But part of our study design was to call everyone back and conduct focus groups about three months after our study ended. And people sat around and smiled and laughed and talked about exercise. So I thought we hadn't just done great research. I thought we'd also helped people in their actual real lives. But I was wrong because almost everyone stopped exercising when their commitment to our study ended. And so I thought, wow, if people who face, and they told me, I asked, why did you stop? And I'm busy. I am a parent. I work. I have to do this and that. And I thought to myself, and this was really a light bulb moment for me and what got me on this path towards sustainable behavior change. If people who faced a life-threatening illness do not feel comfortable or have the skill set to sustain a self-care behavior like physical activity, we have a real problem in our society. And that's when the whoa, the light bulb went off in my brain. Literally, I remember a light bulb. And I said, this is my problem and I'm going to solve it. So all the education and the work I've done has been in service of that. That's such an interesting approach because you would think, and it aligns with some of the advice that I've heard out there years ago, which was, well, if you really wanted to get healthy, if you really wanted to, if you wanted it bad enough, you would do it. It's your fault. You're making poor choices. You have no motivation. You have no motivation to get motivated, right? It's false. I call that part of the old story of behavior change because nice. it's been around for about 40 years and it has not worked for most people. Yeah. And that's the other thing is then even in the light of, oh, you want it bad enough not being a really viable motivating factor, you would then think, or people would normally think, again, under old thought processes, well, if you have a health scare that's that legitimate, you know, as the C word is cancer, okay, I survived. Now I'm going to really, you know, I'm going to carpe diem. I'm going to really live life. I'm going to get healthy, stay healthy, sustain all that. And yet even that's not enough. And it's counterintuitive. And to be honest, for the first part of my career, you know, and I've been working with individuals, not just in research, but I've been coaching individuals in the process, which has been part of 
you know, my education is working with people and understanding where does the rubber hit the road? Where the, what are the real barriers? And I went into that health coaching, believing that health, despite what the cancer survivors said, I still thought that health as a motive for behavior like physical activity or changing your eating would be a very good motive because what is more important than our health in theory, right? But then I did an academic study at the university that suggested that health as a motivator for physical activity was actually as poor of a motivator as weight loss was, which I had already known. And I was like, what? This can't be. This is a terror. Oh my gosh. But once you start thinking about it, and of course, the great thing about research is it helps you get smarter. It forces you to think deeper, to try to understand how you got this result that you weren't expecting and that you had actually hypothesized against finding. And what we discover is that health is abstract. What does it mean? Where's the feedback that you're getting healthy from your efforts that you need to keep going? And finally, we know from behavioral economics that humans are much more motivated by what they're going to immediately experience than some future outcome they have to wait for. And of course, health is the epitome of a future outcome that we have to wait for. So it's not that health as a motivator doesn't motivate some. It motivates probably a minority of people. But what I care about is what is going to motivate the vast majority of the people. And it's not health or weight loss. So you have a new book. We haven't mentioned it yet. I'm going to mention it now. The Joy Choice, How to Finally Achieve Lasting Changes in Eating and Exercise. And so not only are you talking about health in the factor of eating and diet and fuel, but also in the then using of that fuel in the right way, but then habits. And you have a unique perspective on forming habits and that being what people then took as the real answer for real change when it comes to those things of diet, of exercise, of of basically any behavior change. But you have a unique perspective that what if that's not even the real, you know, silver bullet? So the step back I'm going to take is sustainable behavior change is the goal. That's my goal is to do work that helps individuals and the professionals that work with them understand how to create lasting change. So that's a tall order. But what that means is it orients us to approach things in a very different way than if we're just like, I got to get started versus I'm going to keep going forever. And a very popular, I would say widely popular narrative in our society is the idea that the best way to create sustainable change is to make it automatic. So to form an automatic habit that you don't have to think about, you don't have to exert willpower for, and it's a beautiful story. And automatic behavior, we do a lot of it during a day and it helps us. We know that. The question is whether the medium of an automatic habit that works so well for simple behaviors like feeding your dog in the morning or flossing your teeth at night is equally is valuable for complicated behaviors like exercise or healthy eating that have multiple steps to them. And, you know, of course, I contend in the book that the power of habits is not all it's cracked up to be for complex behaviors like eating and exercise and, you know, give a bunch of reasons why. And to just make it very simple for your listeners, consider the habit loop, which is what is kind of the popular way to talk about forming automatic habits, where you have your cue. So if we're going to use flossing as an example, I 
brush my teeth. That's my cue. I pick up the floss. That's step two, the behavior I floss. And then step three is some type of reward that is going to make me feel good, whether it's clean mouth or a sense of satisfaction. And then after I do that a handful of times, that in my brain creates this automaticity between flossing and brushing. And I don't have to think about it anymore. And voila, it's a beautiful story. Now, let's walk out of the bathroom where we tend to be alone without a lot of distractions. And let's enter our houses where there might be pets and a handful of people and unexpected things happening. Now, how does that habit loop survive when we've got all of these other inputs, including a behavior like physical activity, where it's not just, you know, a two minute floss between your teeth. It's you may have to get somewhere. You may have to change your clothes. You may have to push through ambivalence. There are so many other things that go into it. And, you know, I just want to say that there is a next generation conversation happening in the habit literature about whether or not really complex behaviors like physical activity should be discussed in the same way as these more simple behaviors. So I hope I didn't go into too much detail in that, but that is kind of addressing how I'm coming at this differently. And, you know, I think part of the old story behavior change is we're given strategies and programs and they sound logical, but we haven't been taught to think critically about them. And so that's part of my goal is to help people ask questions that maybe they haven't asked before. That jives with me. That jives with my experience because I've been in this kind of, no, create those habits, wear the groove, get into the consistent, you know, don't break the chain day after day after day. And if you do, oh no, it's over. And then, you know, adopting a healthier mentality than that, then if in our chaotic, busy lives, if an emergency comes up and I can't work out that day because it's my set time and my backup time is also not viable and maybe I've got to do something smaller or lesser than that day, that's okay. You still get to then check it, but then don't default. Don't then move into always do the default stuff, switch back to the main track, you know, the next day and having a healthier, more consistent, flexible, flexible approach. Yes. However, it can be a perspective that if you fall off the wagon or whatever phraseology you want to use, yes. you then have to gear yourself back up to get back on again. But if you never view it as falling off the wagon, and that's what my book is about, because my experience working with people and the research is mounting supporting this idea that actually being more flexible, not trying to create a precise action that is cued by another precise action, but in fact, having the flexibility to change things up when life happens. And I would suggest when doesn't life happen? So how can a behavior stay standing in our perfectly imperfect lives? If it itself is not imperfect. And that's kind of what the thesis of the book. Here's the deal. And, and it speaks to exactly what you're raising. Habit formation is how do you create a system that is going to precisely take you where you need to go? And it needs to be precise in order for it to function with the precise cue. But if we know that life has a lot of variability in it, for most of us, not everyone, some people are habiters, you know, and I live with a habiter, so I know how well it works for him. 
But a lot of us, and I would even say most of us are unhabiters where we don't necessarily have this incredibly innate discipline that we bring to all areas of our lives. We manage other people whose lives have this other level of unexpectedness that leaks into our lives too. And so given that, what type of system will let us go with the flow so that our healthy eating and exercise and other self-care behaviors can stay standing? And that answer is it's something that flexes when you need to. And the research suggests, in fact, that that is a more adaptive approach to eating and exercise than trying to get it precisely right all the time. Now, you've mentioned habiters and unhabiters, and that's exactly where I want to go next. I want to break that down and dive deeper here and spell out, you know, because I think people are going to find which camp they fall yes. into pretty easily here. Yes. So that is a playful concept I came up with to invite people to think critically about what they've learned about behavior change and whether it's a good fit for them or not. So a habiter, you know, as I alluded to before, is someone who is pretty disciplined. When they write a to-do list, they pretty much check it off on their daily to-dos. It tends to be more of a personality trait that gets applied into many domains of their lives. And, and again, I've been working with individuals in behavior change for a long time, and I've learned to recognize the difference between habiters and unhabiters. And I am married to a habiter. And, you know, he has an exercise habit. His alarm rings. He's sleeping in his clothes, so there's no friction. He gets up, goes into the basements, and that's no thought needed. Now, let's flip to an unhabiter. An unhabiter is someone who may not be as disciplined, might be comfortable being a little less organized, might be the person in charge of the pets and the kids, or might manage people in a workplace. And the reason why that's important is because we have enough unexpected come at us as individuals. But if we're managing other beings on top of ourselves, then we have all of their unanticipated to deal with too. And what that means, you know, I, I have to come up with a, a clever way of saying this, which I don't have, but basically it's like, the more people that whose logistics of living you are in charge of managing, your unanticipated goes up exponentially. And there are many people, millions and millions of people who manage many people, yet the behavior change story they've learned, the narrative has not explicitly addressed this essence of their lives. And so the purpose of writing this book was to provide a new story of behavior change that isn't just common sense, but is based on the latest science and also based on supporting the part of our brain that evolved to help us pivot when we need to, because that's what we're talking about. We have to pivot all the time. And the story about eating and exercise has not had a chapter on pivoting. I feel like and I'm hoping that your research supports this, that there are a lot more people who are unhabiters than there are habiters. I don't know if that's true, but I feel like a lot of the people who struggle trying to be a habiter because they're told they have to be. That's right. They bristle under that. And then they realize, like I kind of did with reading this, that, wait a second, you mean I've been going about this all wrong? Tell me how to do it right. So the habiter concept is a 
practice-based concept, not a you know, not an academic-based concept. But what you're saying is common sense because we have been taught how to approach changing our healthy behaviors with the old story behavior change. And it only has worked for a minority of the people. You know, as again, an academic and a coach, I believe the reason is, is because the formula for behavior change has come out of a medical model. It's come out of research on prescriptions, but it's how the value of exercise and healthy eating has evolved organically, naturally, and for good reason. If we're going to understand that physical activity and eating in certain ways is going to help our health, we have to have research that are, you know, and when you do research, it has to be very precise. So then what comes out of that precise research is precise prescriptions, which then have programs that tell you to be precise, but it's the precision that's getting in the way. And the precision also unfortunately contributes to all or nothing thinking. And so what happens is, you know, like you said, the fall off the wagon, when you are not in all or nothing thinking, there is no wagon to fall off of because it's all about this journey. And some days your step is teeny teeny. And sometimes it's what you want to do. But when your vision and belief system for your self-care behaviors embodies the need to be flexible, by the way, just like we view our parenting and just like we view our podcasting and just like we view our partnering, we don't bring the same level of need for precision to all these other life areas that, by the way, we're sustaining over time as we do to healthy eating and exercise. So essentially, you're saying we need to break the rules that we've been told are the rules up till this point regarding behavior change and adopt these. I don't want to call new rules. I want to say a new new perspective, new new approach. Break the rules of behavior change so you can change your behavior for good. Yes. That is exactly right. And the new rules aren't rules. They are principles based on emerging science about how to support our brain's executive functioning based on research on what the data show is more likely to help people adhere to a general lifestyle that they want to adhere to. And it's based on how we live the rest of our lives. So speaking of the uninhabitors, because I definitely identify with that. Again, I think that I just, I've struggled with creating air quotes, habits that are healthy, not just in terms of eating or exercise, but just across the spectrum of life. And honestly, when they mostly inevitably, it's it's not a matter of, you know, if it's a matter of when I will again, fall off the wagon to use that metaphor. It's a matter of, okay, dealing with the guilt, dealing with the, is something wrong with me? Why can't I do, you know, dealing with the defeat of that and I know there's a lot of other people out there who have to have flexible schedules, just like me. People that, again, I, yeah, I wish there was like almost like a, I'm trying to think of if there, maybe I can come up with something like a, a, a responsibility threshold or percentage or something like that when it comes to when you're in charge of other people, whether you're leading a team or whether that's kids at home. I mean, that's one of the things for me. I always try to put myself in the head of somebody who is, you know, not necessarily a cubicle worker or an entrepreneur, but somebody who is just a person who is trying to go about their life at home and 
make better productive choices and yet finds they can't because they're dealing with variables that others aren't. It's very true. And, you know, the old story of behavior change is very focused on you do this and you do this and you do that, and then you're going to get this. But that type of approach, there's a naivete in that because it doesn't acknowledge that our lives don't roll like that. Most of our lives, again, there are some people that it works for. And a lot of those people are the people writing the prescriptive books. It works for them, but we need a belief system and an orientation to our behavior change that it's not about necessarily just giving us grace. Again, that's what we do in all these other areas of our lives, but is designed to survive in the earthquake of our daily lives. And so, yes, I mean, I guess the answer to what you just said is yes, yes, (laughs) and yes. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's something that works so well, it basically feels like magic. For me, I'm thinking air conditioning, noise-canceling headphones, definitely. Meeting-free Fridays. What about selling with Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your own shop stage to the first real store stage, you don't have to just sell your own stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from brands you love and give your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Shopify also helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout 36 percent better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to shopify magic your ai powered all-star sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com slash beyond again go to shopify.com slash beyond now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash beyond so you say that essentially the thing that blocks us or basically tears down our best laid plans of mice and men and self-care plans are the four decision disruptors. Let's talk about these. Let's let's go one by one through these and kind of define them. Sure. So Daniel Kahneman was asked in a meeting uh, of academics who are trying to learn how to create behavior change, you know, tell us a wise one, right? Because he's this incredible guru. How can we help people create lasting change? And his answer was, 
the best advice I ever learned from my mentor, Kurt Lewin, was that we don't try to drive behavior, that there are two forces always at like a point of choice. There's drivers and resistors. We don't want to drive it. That's not the way to do it. The way to do it is to understand what are the core resistors and go after each one of those things. So the decision disruptors that I'm going to share with you are the four biggest disruptors I found through my work with clients that derail people making the decision that they hoped for. And I'm going to go through each one. Temptation. You know, I think everyone's going to resonate with that word. It's when we feel seduced to do something, whether it's the couch and Netflix seducing us to stay there instead of go take the walk we had planned, or we're at a party and we just started a new eating plan that we feel really good on, but there's this beautiful, sexy piece of chocolate cake listening from across the room that's just calling our name. That's what temptation is. And that tends to be a really strong decision disruptor. But when we learn how our brain is actually processing these temptations, it gives us an understanding that can give us more control. So there are new theories just about eating and just about exercise. They've been built on the distinct phenomenon of those two behaviors and how our brain works with them. The beauty is that there's some overlap that is can be helpful to us in this conversation. And the overlap is that when we see that glistening chocolate cake or feel the disdain for the run we think we should be taking, that isn't necessarily in the present moment. What we are experiencing is our past history with eating the chocolate cake or the discomfort or shame we felt when we had to run with peers that were, you know, much faster and left us in the dust or made fun of us or something. So that when we feel tempted, it's not the chocolate cake calling us. It's actually our past experience with it. And I think that realization is knowledge that really can be powerful when we're aware of it because it enables us to create a new narrative. And we know that when we name it, and this is a beautiful saying from Dan Siegel, the neuroscientist, when we name it, we tame it. So that's temptation. Do you want to say anything about that? Yeah, I was going to say, uh, so I, I even think the word temptation is a loaded word for a lot of people and that it's not even necessarily that you're like you're talking about chocolate cake, which is again something that shouldn't be, you know, based on if your dietary needs allow you to have it or not. Yes. I have gluten free people in my home for for health reasons, for real yes. legit reasons, not just preference or fad yes. diets type stuff. Yes, they can't have it, but they can have substitutionary type stuff. But what I'm saying is, is okay. We should allow ourselves to have rewards and you know enjoy food. We should enjoy the things Absolutely. we want to do. However, there are certain things that are less frequent than others and just getting wrapped up in the whole like, oh, I'm tempted. It's it's a loaded word. So is there a fresher perspective? Well, I think the fresher perspective we have to get to through all four of the disruptors. You're absolutely right about that. And the frame we use, the words and terms carry meaning and experience. So I couldn't agree with you more about that. And because of your comment, what I want to do is jump to the P, 
And I'm jumping to the P because I'm going to sneak in something that I was going to hold to the end. But the four decision disruptors are actually decision traps, T-R-A-P. But I'm going to jump to the P because one of the reasons why people get so caught up in this notion of temptation, which because we come at this with all or nothing thinking or perfection, the P is perfection. And if instead of this precision and perfection, I have to do it just this way, I have to hit the bullseye. It doesn't matter. It doesn't count if I do anything else. I have to do it right or not at all. And that is what creates the problem for the feeling of, gosh, there's the chocolate cake and it wasn't on my plan. But if we come to it without the second disruptor or actually the fourth one, which is perfection, because it's a special occasion. And when we're allowed to have flexibility or bring flexible restraint, which is a jargony academic term, but that's what's used in the literature, research shows that when people bring flexible restraint, for example, to their weekend eating, as opposed to, you know, sticking to the plan, no matter what, that flexibility is actually associated with better eating outcomes and even weight maintenance outcomes. So, you know, I don't even want to go into weight because I think that is, uh, that really junks up the waters with behavior change. But that's all to say that there are outcomes supporting the idea that when we let ourselves compromise, again, don't we have to do this in all other areas of our lasting products in our life? We're more likely to be able to maintain it. When we bring all or nothing perfection to this notion, oh my gosh, I'm tempted, I can't have this. We also want to R, rebel. Mm -hmm. Research shows that human beings want to reclaim our freedom when we feel that it's been taken away. While if not being able to have something that you love on a special occasion is a recipe for feeling that your freedom has been removed, I don't know what is. And the natural human tendency is it's a boomerang effect. It's saying, I can't have that or I should run. I should run. And guess what? Our brain goes, screw you should. I'm going to do the opposite. So that's another disruptor. I'll stop there so you can react to that. Yeah. So that's number two, rebellion, which again, that was another loaded word I was going to point out. And, And perfection is also. But the third one's accommodation, which sounds like oh no, accommodation is good. That means I'm doing the right thing and it's almost akin to the word compromise, which that's more loaded, I think, than accommodation. Compromise has positive and a negative in a lot of people's minds. Compromise, depending upon how you look at it, compromise can be, oh no, we're coming together. We're both giving in a little bit to find common ground versus other people treat the word compromise as, oh, you've compromised your principles. You've you've right. given in. And so... Right. So... When I was trying to decide what to call the A word, the phenomenon, you know, thankfully there was an A word that fitted. I do want to say, um, I'll define it and then I'll tell you what another possibility was for this word that would have been a terrible decision. Accommodation is when we consistently, not sometimes, when we all of the time subsume our own eating and exercise goals and plans behind the needs of other people in our work. And again, we have to do that sometimes. That's part of being in relationships. It's part of taking care of people. But a lot of times people feel that they always have to do it. And let me give you a brief story about eating. So I had a client who was following an eating plan that was working for her. She felt great. 
she went to a family, multi-family gathering, a very special event. And her very dear friend, you know, handed her this beautiful, I don't remember what the dessert was, but, and my friend who didn't feel tempted so that tea wasn't there, didn't feel rebellion because she didn't want it at all, but she wanted to accommodate her friend's need to feel cared for. And so because it was an all or nothing situation, because she was so locked up in accommodating the needs of her friend, she ate it. It put her into a spiral. She didn't bring compromise to it because she was so focused on, I have to do this. I have to be a good person, to be a good friend. So accommodation and people do with exercise all the time. They have a plan to do something, but gosh darn it, they cannot leave their email or the phone rings and they see who it is and they want to accommodate this other person's needs to the detriment all the time of their plans to do whatever physically active. So that is what accommodation is. And it's, it's on a different level. It's not about resisting the rules or following the rules of eating and exercise. It's about something deeper. It's about, it's related to our self-worth. It's related to who we feel we have to be to be good people. But Despite being on a different orbit of these other disruptors, it gets in people's way. And, and again, I'm going to, I'm going to go back to that saying that I said earlier. The beauty is when we can name this. Oh, and, and this is where our executive functioning comes in when we pause so that we can create a space to go. Oh, I see you rebellion. I see you, but I don't have to go there. When you name it. You tame that experience over your choice. And that's why it's so important to be able to recognize which of the traps is most likely to get in your way. And, um, you know, I have a quiz on my website to help people recognize that. Yeah. And we can link up to that in the show notes for this episode. So make sure to check that out. So that's the four. It's T-R-A-P. We, we jumped ahead to P. So now we're there. We're at perfection. And you've kind of already spoken yes. on that. So is there anything... More to say about perfection in the light of the first three. Yes. Well, I think what's important to say is perfection sets the stage for all of the others and all or nothing thinking, which is what perfection represents. It isn't just a tendency that we have. It's actually an embedded belief system. And that's why it's hard to change because it's literally like, it's in the software uh, that our brain is running on. It's changeable. That's why I'm calling it software instead of hardware. But over decades, we've been told you do it this way or not at all. And we literally believe this. So with perfection, you know, if you didn't have perfection, then when you're at that point of accommodation with your friend offering you the dessert, it wouldn't have to be I don't really want this, but I have to have it would be, you know what? I can eat part of it and that will help meet the needs I'm trying to meet of my friend, but I'm also going to be respecting part of mine. That's what the, that's where the flexibility is. And we don't have to rebel against that run that we had planned because maybe we don't feel like a run. So we'll take a walk instead. Perfection accentuates all the other ones and make them come alive with, you know, fire. When we don't have perfection, the opposite of perfection is the flexibility. It's the, it's the perfect and perfect option. Then these other disruptors just don't have the power. So perfection is kind of the foundation that might be a good one for people to start with. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's inherent in the word perfect 
means it's perfect. Perfect means it's perfect. And that is literally you are or you aren't. It's the all or nothing fallacy. And, you know, I, I want to state that, you know, some of the formulas for creating the automatic habits explicitly say you have to do it precisely right without any variety whatsoever or your habits will fail. If that's the system you're trying to build your behavior change on, well, we've already discussed why that's going to set most of us up to fail. So you mentioned the perfect imperfect option, which is the title of the book, The Joy Choice. So let's talk a little bit about what that choice is. Yeah. So I call it the joy choice. You know, it was very purposeful and it's for a couple of reasons. Number one, the goal is to stay on the path of lasting change. When your system inherently permits the perfect and perfect choice, you succeed. And that is joyful when you succeed in your initiative. That's one reason it's called the joy choice. The other reason, and it potentially is even a bigger reason, is because in order to fulfill who we are, you know, each of us have has a unique we are unique and we have unique passions and we have unique roles and responsibilities. And in order to best fulfill the meaningful roles and responsibilities in our lives, we need to have energy and enthusiasm and vitality. And so when we pick the joy choice, we aren't just making an in-the-moment decision that supports our greater eating and exercise goals. We are actualizing who we are. We're taking that step. We're injecting ourselves with the fuel, even if it's just a small injection, even if it's a small step, we are taking care of ourselves in some way, shape, or form. And that is fueling ourselves for the meaningful and joyful roles and responsibilities that are in our lives. Now, in the book, you talk about a three-step decision tool. Let's walk through that a little bit. Sure. So. It's one thing to talk about an idea like the joy choice, but how do you operationalize it? How do you make it work in your life? And that is what the pop decision tool is. So, you know, we started the conversation with the old story of behavior change. And in the old story of behavior change, we make our goals and plans in this motivation bubble. You know, we know we're going to do it this time. We're so inspired, but this bubble as soon as it impacts life, life bursts our bubble and our plans and goals go down the drain. So what if instead of letting life burst our bubble, we decide to pop our exercise or eating plan when it becomes unworkable? In that scenario, pop is an acronym that means we are taking charge because it's meaningful to us. But pop is also the steps of the tool. So we pause. You know, I'm about the million and tenth person in, in history or more to talk about the value of pausing when we're at a challenge. So pause gives us the space to regroup, take a breath, support our executive functioning, harness our attention for step two, which is O, to open up our options and play with the possibilities. Now, I know that's a mouthful, but all that means is what we're talking about is that flexibility that we've been talking about this whole show, that when we are able to change up and pivot 
when our plan becomes unworkable. And so the system is geared toward not just getting us set up for success, but giving us a tactical maneuver and system for when things don't go according to plan, which they do so often. So what do we have to do? We open up our options. What are the options at point A when I can't do my plan? And this can be a little challenging at the beginning because we haven't been used. We've been stuck and preached the all or nothing dogma. So our brain doesn't necessarily innately know what are the options right now. So it is a process of learning to say, okay, if I were talking to my friend or my kid and they were at this decision point, what are a couple of of options that might be workable, though they were imperfect? That's all we're aiming for is doing something imperfect. And then the third part of PAP is pick the joy choice. And the joy choice is the perfect imperfect option that lets us do something instead of nothing. So the stakes are very low, but what the system does is it can guide our thinking which cuts out noise and stress because we're actually going through a process of thought. And it's a process that guides us to pick something that will keep us on the path of lasting change, keep us fueling ourselves no matter how small, and knowing that we're not just taking care of ourselves for ourselves, but for the other projects and people in our lives we care about. I can't help but think the word joy is almost been co-opted by Marie Kondo recently uh, in recent history. You know, she's got the book, the Netflix show, all that kind of stuff where she has you analyze the things in your house and ask if they spark joy. And I couldn't help but think there's maybe a similarity here that it's not tangible things, although it might be but it might be the enjoying of those things as they apply to health. I couldn't help but think that this is almost an approach to thoughts, feelings, but especially actions in that same way as you're going through this pop tool. You're analyzing your temptations, rebellion, accommodation, perfection, and putting that aside and saying, no, I want to pause. I want to open up myself to possibilities. And then I'm going to pick something that gives me joy. And joy is different than, I think, happiness or immediate enjoyment of something. Joy is like, a, in, in a weird way, it's that longer lasting journey thing, but it's more fulfilling, sustainable. It's a loaded word also, in other words, is what I'm saying. No, I think, well, I think joy is a word that a lot of people are using now. The difference that I want to iterate is that... I'm using the word joy choice, not because something is necessarily going to make us joyful, like Maria Kondo might be asking you, does this spark joy? I'm calling it the joy choice because it's the perfect imperfect and it's what is and it lets us do what we need to do that we haven't been able to do. So it's not necessarily that eating half the cake is going to spark joy. And it very well might. I think once we learn to think about these things in new ways, we can feel great because, gosh, we are finally figuring out how to do this in a way that lets us both participate in the celebration and respect our eating needs that we're trying to do to take better care of ourselves. You know, So it's different, but I agree with you. I think joy 
is a word that a lot of people use because it's very powerful. And I guess my goal for using it in this way for branding the perfect and perfect choice, right? I could have just called it the perfect and perfect choice, but I'm actually branding them the joy choice because I want people to be inspired by doing something instead of nothing, which is mundane and not sexy at all. I'm going to do something instead of nothing. No, I'm going to pick the joy choice. And so that's why I called it that. So as we wrap up, I want to kind of say, okay, what's a small way? Let's do a practice run here okay. using pop and say, come up with an example and just say, okay, show how this actually plays out practically in some unhabiter's real life. Sure. So I didn't go through it, but I'm going to, I'm going to use myself an example. I'm using this because I think it's, it's realistic and it's doable. So, you know, my plan is to take, you know, an ideal 60 minute walk in the morning. And while I was getting the book launch time was a crazy time. And, you know, I found myself one morning, there was just no way I could take the walk. So I was like, pop. I popped my plan, the walk. What am I going to do? I paused. Okay. I'm not going to let perfection get in the way and say, oh, forget about it today. I'm just not going to do any physical activity. So I named the perfection to tame it. Then I opened up my options. What are my options right now? Well, I could take a 15 minute walk right now, but I really don't want to take the time that I'm not going to do that. I'm not a gym person, so I'm not going to go to the gym. I could walk after dinner with my family and, you know, it's a seven minute walk around the block. I can do that. I named a couple of options. I'm just giving you two for the sake of time. I picked the joy choice, the after dinner walk. Now I made an assumption that my family would go with me. So I know my family. I could make that assumption. After dinner, I asked my family if we could take a walk around the block and we're a couple houses down the block and my 14 year old cocks his head at me and he looks at me and he says, is this a joy choice for you? And I was like, you got it. You, you know, so the options don't have to be right now. Another thing with eating is you're at a party and you would, you know, nothing is on your plan, but you want to partake and you do it. Maybe when you open up your options, you decide I'm going to let myself have that baked potato smothered in cheese. But instead of the dinner that I was planning to have, whatever it was, I'm going to have a a simpler, maybe a simple salad or, or whatever it is to let you know that I picked the joy choice. The joy choice was participating in some way at the celebration, but the compromise for me, the joy choice is that in the evening, I'm going to eat differently than I had thought I was going to, to help me feel like I'm evening things out. That makes sense. See, and that's one example. And I think the thing is, is that this is kind of a trained decision-making rubric, triage yes. kind of process that you have to do over and over and train yourself to do. And once you do, and your perspective and thus actions have shifted, not only will you be choosing the joy choice more, you'll be feeling it. You couldn't have said it better. And I want to say you're absolutely right. You know, like any decision process, there is a, a phase of learning and that's just life. So people could say, oh, there shouldn't be. Well, things that are worth doing are worth learning. And one of the things I tell people that as they're in the learning phase, which they should consider, they shouldn't expect to go 
you know, like snap their fingers and be an expert. Like you shouldn't expect to play Chopin right when you play the piano. You have to go through chopsticks first, right? Or whatever the modern equivalent of learning how to play the piano is. So make a contact in your smartphone, pop. And when you're at that point, don't expect that you can memorize everything. Call it out and go through it. Like give yourself permission to be in a learning stage because it's worth it once you do learn how to use it. And by the way, you can use POP with any decision-making process on the fly when you face a challenge. Well said. There's a lot more we could talk about, but I think we can be pretty succinct and say, once this episode's done, pause, go grab the book, or where is there a better place where they can find out more? And let's shoot people towards where they can take the quiz. Sure. They can find out more and take the quiz on my website, which is my name, michelleseeker.com, on the Joy Choice page. And on the homepage, I believe there's a link both to the quiz and to the book page. So, um, And then they can read what people have had to say about the book. It was a Next Big Idea Club nominee. Um, I was very honored by that. And um, yeah, so I hope if these ideas resonate with people, I hope that they give people hope that there is a new story of behavior change in town. And this time it's got a happy ending. Love it. Awesome. Michelle, thank you so much for bringing this new perspective to all of us. Thank you for having me. Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Michelle Seeger as much as I did. I really enjoyed adding yet another dimension to this whole habits and consistency element to productivity. Because if we're not consistent with our actions, then they don't amount to much. You can do something one time, once in a very long while, but that doesn't stack. That doesn't build brick by brick consistent behavior that we know we want to have. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation. Make sure to grab the book. You can find the link for that in the show notes at beyondthetodolist.com. You can also find Shortcast episodes, a partnership by Blinkist and myself at beyondthetodolist.com slash Blinkist. Those are seven to 10 minute episodes of past episodes of the show distilled down into quick little bite-sized bursts of productivity. And if you found this episode helpful in any way, would you do me the favor of sharing it with somebody that you know needs to hear it? Hit that share button in your podcast player app of choice, wherever you're listening to this right now, share it to that person. Let them know you were thinking of them. Let them know about this conversation and this book. Thank you so much for sharing. Thanks again for listening. And I will see you next episode. Hey, thanks for listening to the end. If you're looking for a show to start helping you apply these productivity lessons on your business, check out Millionaire University. It's real lessons from real entrepreneurs teaching you what you need to know to improve your business or start one if you've been putting it off. It covers all aspects of business from starting 
marketing, growing, managing, and everything in between, wearing all the hats. And as an added bonus, I am conducting a number of those conversations, those interviews. So you'll fit right in. Again, that's Millionaire University. Just search for it in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast.